you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. One thing that we do as a staff, Chris, Aaron, and myself, is every Monday we have a staff meeting and then we go eat. There's one word that is said, though, that will determine exactly what we eat, and it's a look, actually, that somebody might have in the group, and it is this, wings. <laughs> that, that's our weakness, wings, chicken wings, the real ones, none of the fancy stuff, just, just old-fashioned, good buffalo chicken wings. There's this craving that happens that just fully embodies all of us. It takes hold. It's like this force that is bigger than anything we can identify, and it pulls us to wherever we can get the wings. We have multiple spots that we go to, some better than others. Some, their wings are the right sauce, but they're a little too big. Therefore, they don't have the right crunch to chicken to sauce ratio. Some are the perfect size wing where you can have the flat and eat it all in one without it being too much in your mouth. But the sauce is a little bit mustard-based, and we're vinegar people at Kaleo. We love wings. There's something about it. The other day, we had that question, wings? It was last Monday, and so we went to State 48, and we sat down, and as a natural-born leader, the waitress came up, and I said, I got this, guys. She said, what would y'all like? I said, we're going to have three orders of the chicken wings, extra crispy, please, all buffalo sauce. Also, can we get three side orders of fries? The reason we know that we all want the fries is because Aaron's going to eat like five of them. I'm going to eat an appropriate amount. Chris is going to clean the place if there's a fry. He gets mad at me when I leave just a little tiny bit. He's like, those are the crunchies. They're still good. And we're dipping them in the ranch. And we do the wing thing. But I think we can all identify that when, when you have this food or you have this craving that takes over, it's like this mystical experience almost. None of us are just eating food just for the pure substance. If we did that, we would blend everything. We would have a blender, we'd mix it, and we'd get our greens in one serving, which some of us do anyways. We would get our protein in one serving. We would do the things that we need to do just to get by. We'd be walking with IVs in our arms. But no, food is a deeply human experience. Because ever since the Egyptians discovered that when the porridge was left out in the sun and it rose like bread, that, man, that tastes good. Now we got something to share. And society as a whole began to flourish with food. We love to eat. We can think about our favorite spots. We can have our preferences. We can have our opinions. We can have the, the places that we frequent the most. But we also have the people that we share those meals with. So I want to go to the upper room for a moment. This is the Last Supper. It's called the Last Supper because it's Jesus' last supper with his disciples before he gives his life for us. 
So they're in this room, and the disciples don't quite understand the meaning, but it's a festival feast. They've made a pilgrimage, and there's an order in which they eat with courses and then song, or prayers and hymns and things that they do. And it's a deeply reverent time, but there's also the familiarity, just as Jesus going to State 48 and ordering, I'm not Jesus in this situation, but if he was there, he would know what his friends wanted to eat and who liked the fries the most. Jesus in this room knows that Peter likes his fish extra crunchy while Andrew eats it raw, you know? There's this deep familiarity in this place, but there's also this tension of the reverence of the moment as Jesus begins his night in the upper room with a vat of water on his knees, cleaning dirty feet. The host in the dirt as the servant. This is like a paradox, if you will. It's a counter, actually, of the food practices and the table practices of the culture. And Jesus, time and time again, continues to get himself in trouble by the way in which he eats. Starting in Mark 2, when Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, he is called a glutton and a drunk as the Son of Man came eating and drinking into this world. The Pharisees looked at him and said, you're doing it wrong. You're not eating correctly. You're not eating with the right people. In fact, these people you're eating with are the reason that God is punishing us through the Roman oppression. These are the people not even pretending to be pious or care. They are loose, they are wild, they are irreverent, and they are rude. They exploit us and they hurt us. These are the worst of the worst. They are the sinners. And Jesus sits at that table. Then he gets to the right table, the Pharisees' table. He's got some steam. He's got some, some following, massing around him. There's this intrigue of who Jesus is. And because there's this intrigue and because he's making a name for himself, he gets the invitation from the right people. And they bring him in. And the first thing that happens when he's eating with these elite people is this woman comes in to the room. Women are not allowed at the table at this time. Women are not allowed to be in this room with these men. And and we have this woman coming into the room and she does the unthinkable. She lets her hair down. That is a wild and scandalous act that she makes, but it's happening at this table, the right table that Jesus at, but the wrong person comes to the right table. And what does Jesus do? He allows her to wash his feet. And I see kind of like this last supper where Jesus as the host, who he's at this right table again with his friends, thinking of this woman who had washed his feet at that time at that right table, And taking upon her the most sinful of the sinners, Jesus placing that identity even on himself as he watches his friend's feet. Now there's another time he gets to the right table. They're being patient with this man. They don't really want to kill him if he just falls in line. So he gets this invitation and he notices as Jesus is being very reflective and observant that there's this positioning happening in the room at this right table. Because you can still get to the right table, but you haven't fully arrived. 
See, you get to that table, but that's just the first step. Then there's a lot of moves to be made before you're the right person at the right table. And then there's this positioning and posturing and and speaking in a way that gets you to that place of the head of the table. And then you have arrived. Jesus has something to say to these Pharisees as he critiques their table practice and says, it's interesting to note how people position themselves. Wouldn't you rather be elevated than have to be sent away? In fact, actually, in the kingdom of God, the first is going to be last, and the last is going to be first, and everyone is utterly confused about what he means. And then we have them in this upper room. All of the table practices of Jesus throughout the Gospels in this climactic moment in the room as he prepares the table as the host, but on his knees as the servant, foreshadowing the feast that is to come. Eating and drinking together as the community of Jesus is a deeply gospel-centered practice. It is actually one of the most prolific and and overarching themes of the Gospels. A fifth of the, the verses in Luke are about Jesus eating or about meals. 15 out of 23 parables have food in them. 70%, 50 references of Jesus and food. Again, Luke 7, the son of man came eating and drinking. You say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. At Kaleo, the very first thing as a church that we bought was a large smoker. Because there's something deeply Jesus-like about cooking food for people. And to plant a church, I mean, you kind of have the freedom to vision cast on what would be the best way to do church. And even selfishly, it's like, well, I like to eat. So what if we, what if we bought this big smoker? Because I don't know anybody. I didn't know Chris at the time. Even we had moved in two, at the end of 2017, beginning of 18, to Phoenix and didn't have friends. And we decided we're going to build community around food. And we did it. I mean, we had a lot more time on our hands then. So we like, we're making bread, smoking uh, briskets all day, doing it up, making sauces, still really cool, fun stuff. But I mean, I, I even got so deep to where I was like fermenting peppers to make hot sauce. I, I mean, this food thing, like sometimes scripture, you can get on this like hobby horse of like what you think is the most important. And this whole food thing was deep to me. And I was like, let's practice this. And guess what? People came to the table and they eat. And we have friends and we have community. And the way we launched in September of 2019, completely innocent and ignorant and happy and joyful of the years to come, we created a long table for us as a community to eat together to be the peace of Christ together, to share food together. So I kind of want to explain a little bit why that is or why that's important. I'm going to use this in a second as a prop. So 
What's so important about the meal? Well, we know that Jesus throughout the entire Gospels is constantly eating and drinking. It's something for us to pay attention to and to be mindful of. But then we also have the first century church, which uh, Chris is going to speak a little bit more about that next week. But basically how the church came around the table to practice the fellowship of community. The Jesus way was the way around the table. But throughout the years, something changed in that practice of the church. Throughout the years, the meal became the mass. So the first three centuries, the church existed underground in people's homes, around people's tables. But something happened at the turn of the third century when, when Constantine basically made it legal for Christianity to be practiced. There was this huge influx of new believers who suddenly were empowered to find the advantage of becoming a Christian or a follower of the way. This provided a significant logistical problem as there was not enough food to feed the influx of people coming into the converted temples and basilicas. So they had to commoditize it. They had to simplify it. They had to make it where you were tasting and sipping instead of eating and drinking. And you came forward and you shared in the Eucharist, the communion, the mass. As that happened throughout the 5th and 6th century, it went from sharing community as people together to priests providing the, the mass to the people because the belief in transubstantiation, which is a fancy word of saying the actual blood and the, or the actual wine and the actual bread or the actual literal transformed blood and body of Jesus. And so if you even spilt a drop, that was sacrilegious. And so then the people couldn't be trusted to pass, it needed to be placed. And this way has dominated the Western church ever since. Um, even when you see a building like this, the architecture alone and the design are pointed as such. There's a reason I've always wanted to do this, by the way, and I'm going to, I didn't plan on it either. Oh, whoa. I feel powerful. Y'all should listen. The reason in a Lutheran church such as this, and I'm not shading the Lutheran church, they have beautiful traditions. Um, the reason though that the pulpits and where you read the, the liturgy and you give the homily are not in the center such as us evangelical-ish people at Kaleo do is because the spoken word is not the most important thing of the gathering. What is? Well, what's center? We have the cross and we have the altar. Now, we, we did our thing to make that altar look more like us, but normally there is a, a candle, there's a cup, there is bread, and there's a couple of things right there because the altar, I don't want to move from here, by the way. The altar becomes and is the central focus of the gathering, now, that's actually a beautiful picture, I believe, of what is important because something happens when we share in the communion of Jesus Christ as sons and daughters of Jesus, of the Father. Something happens when we, as a community, partake in, in communion. 
And so we have these places where it is administered and it is the central focus and it is all good. But the thing that I was always struggling with and found other people struggling with as well, it's one of the things Chris and I really related to early when we decided to plant this church together, was that it seemed very focused on the individual coming up to be pardoned by their sin. And this table image of the Gospels and this altar image of the church didn't quite add up to me. Now, I think there's still a, a, a time where we come to the Lord's table with reverence and introspection and just honest amazement at the extent in which Jesus was willing to go to bring us back into fellowship or for the sake of this sermon, back to the table. But there's also something so much more hopeful about it even. The table, the joy, the communion, and the foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. So I'm going to give a little bit of shade. They don't do this normally, but it's because of COVID, but I've seen these in other places. Do you see this thing? This is a um, commoditized communion cup for efficiency. It, it's good. There's an there's a industry in it, and it belongs. Like, it's not bad. It's not against Jesus. People have deep, meaningful Christ encounters with, with God based on this thing. But this also reveals just how dominant the communion culture in church has become as it has become a grape juice filled. They're Lutheran, so this might be wine, but I don't know. But this grape juice filled, really terrible little biscuity cracker thing. <laughs> I grew up with, with this as well. But it, it shows kind of this very solo packaged, individualized personal experience of the altar of Jesus. Yeah, Kaleo, we wanted to expound on what Eucharist or how Eucharist was practiced. Eucharist means this, thanksgiving. Now, I think most of us eat Thanksgiving meals with their families. I, I heard the other day someone say that, you know, turkey and stuffing and all that can't be as awesome as everyone hypes it up or we'd eat it for a lot more meals in the year. But you got the, you got the image in your mind. You got the, the yams and the potato and the deviled eggs being passed around. You have that one thing that that one ant makes that everyone pretends is good but just is not and then you have the turkey. Depending on how it's cut, it might be dry or it might be great. If you come from the south like I do, it's probably fried. But you have this image of this Thanksgiving meal, and it's a lot of people eating themselves to where they are so full that they take a nap after. And it's not just because of the tryptophan. It's just because it is a very filling experience with family gathered around the table. Celebrating something. Now, what if we as a church embodied that table practice? What does that look like? A quote that, that I read the other day from Leonard Sweet said, a, a untabled, fa or untabled faith is an unstable one. 
When you remove your faith or your Jesus experience, which this is what the corporate gathering is. It's us creating space to experience the word of God together as a community. It's big. The spirit of God, we believe, is in this place, moving and penetrating into our hearts and leading us out into the world to be more like him. But what happens is if this is all we got, if this is all we create space to have, that faith becomes unstable and immature and contingent on the pew gathering or the chair gathering or wherever you find yourself on that meeting. But we all have tables, I assume, in this room. And the ones who do not are in proximity to ones who do. It's this deep reflection of the kingdom to come. And our tables get messy. And they get wild. They get argumentative. Sometimes there's tears. Sometimes... There's outrage, probably some profanity even at the table, probably from that same aunt who makes that terrible casserole. But her tables are extremely and extraordinarily complex. But in that complexity, there's a beauty present. At the table, we find ourselves confronted with the mysterious presence of Christ if you call yourself a Christ follower. At every single table that we occupy, we find ourselves confronted, whether we realize it or not, whether it's aware in our mind, whether we've said it out loud or not, or deep down into our being, there is something mysteriously present in the divine to where there is a certain mystery present in food that we do not even understand, and that's why it's so joyous when we share it. At the table of Jesus... While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you. In the Father's kingdom. The band's going to come up here and bring in the Holy Spirit for a little moment. And I just want us for a moment to enter into that room. If it helps you to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. This is a deeply intimate experience. These are friends who are known. Some heavy things have been said. There's been a betrayal that has been prophesied. There's denial that has been professed. Feet have been washed. Prayers have been made. Songs have been sung. Food has been consumed. There's been seriousness, and I'm sure some tears even from some of the heavy things that Jesus had said. 
but it's been multiple hours of eating together. So there's been laughter as well, the joy of being friends. And there Jesus is, if we're going to go Da Vinci and see him at the Last Supper in the middle of the table, he's probably at the head of the table at this moment as he is teaching. And you have all these people positioning to be at his feet, arguing left and right and greatest and the best and still doing the same old worldly table practices of positioning and posturing and trying to do it right. And there we have Jesus, the host of the feast. Now this host has just washed your dirty feet. This host has been known to eat at all the wrong tables and when he eats at the right tables, he eats at them wrong. But yet this is the table that the Lord has prepared for you. Sit in that moment. Now, the disciples don't actually understand what it is that Jesus is prophesying or saying that is to come. There's a tension there. But us, in hindsight, being able to read the scripture and being a resurrected people ourselves are able to know the significance of what he is saying. And the key word that we, we or the key phrase that we are going to focus on and that we focus on as a community is this. Do this in remembrance of me. What does that mean to you? Growing up in my old Southern Baptist church with blue carpet, not red, there was a altar in the front where every quarter you would do the Lord's Supper and it said across it, do this in remembrance of me. Now, it's a beautiful thing to take the bread and to give thanks for it for the body that was broken. And it's a beautiful and serious and reverential thing to take the cup that is the blood shed for us and drink it. But do this in remembrance of me, I think, is even bigger than that worshipful and appropriate act. Do this in remembrance of me might even be so far as to say, sit at the table and eat and drink together as the community of Jesus with Jesus as the host. Do that in remembrance of Jesus. And at that table, two things happen. There's this encounter with the servant host. And then there's also this formation where the disciples themselves become more like this great servant leading giver. To where now, whichever table we occupy can be an act of worship, can be a, an opportunity for encounter can be a place of formation where sinners can come to the table and eat with Jesus. And that is why it is the Lord's table and not the church's. Because at this table, there is only one menu. There's not a menu for the rich and one for the poor. There's not one for Democrats and Republicans, for vaccinated and unvaccinated. 
for black people, for white people, for people who have a home and those who do not, for people who are so mature and seasoned in their face and the person that is hanging on by a thread, the person who is irreverent and profane and the one who's never even let a cuss word slip from their lips. Just one menu. Oh, just one menu. And that table is prepared for us, even in the presence of our enemies, as it is a reflection of what God has done for us and what God will fully accomplish. The feast at the Lord's table, where we can taste and know that the Lord is good where our cups overflow and we want for nothing. Jesus, I just feel your presence even in this place at this moment. Again, and honestly, I wish it was next week so we could go eat. I believe Chris will probably give a good word that'll make us excited again about that. Speak, God. God, I just want us, I, I want us to go to our own tables just for a moment, whether we're going to eat after this or, or whether it's in the morning or lunch with a friend or sitting around with our family, as dysfunctional as they may be. God, place us at those tables, God. And I just want right now just to ask for your spirit to be so dominant at the tables that it's undeniable that you are our host. God, that we encounter you, that we are formed by you, God, that we embody what it looks like to be people who practice your ways together. And we do this in remembrance of you. And it is good. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.